0: Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Folka.
1: Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss contemporary issues in science and technology with a focus on biotechnology and new innovations that can help people in the planet. I'm Paul Vincelli, sitting in for Dr. Kevin Falta, and today we're going to talk about DNA in the diet and protein and glyphosate in meat, milk, and eggs. And so this is a a very interesting topic, and with us uh, today we we have Dr. Allison Van Enenham, a Cooperative Extension Service Specialist in Animal Genomics and Biotechnology, from the Department of Animal Science at the University of California. And and, uh, Allison, uh, it's such a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us.
2: Well, thanks for having me back. I was actually on one of the very beginning episodes of this uh, podcast, so it's fun to be a, a return guest. <laughs>
1: yes, indeed. Yes, this is your second time around, and we'll hopefully won't be the last time. So uh, I do want to uh, just, for our listeners, maybe mention a few points of, of relevance from your bio, um, BS in Agricultural Science from the University of Melbourne in uh, Australia, uh, Ma- Masters of Science from the University of California that also in animal science PhD in genetics from the University of California as well. And uh, you, you are a, a, a faculty member there at the University of California long list of uh, all kinds of awards and not at all surprising as someone who follows your work. I follow you on Twitter and really appreciate the, uh, the knowledge you bring to to that forum and uh, I do want to mention for our listeners, you were recently uh, elected a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the AAAS. Uh, that is a very high distinction, uh, and and an elected position by or an elected elected award by other uh, members of the a- AAAS. And so. Uh, this is a high degree of peer recognition. I want to acknowledge that. And, and, and maybe you could tell us a little bit more about the award because many people are unaware. of it.
2: Um, sure. Yeah. So yeah. it was an honor um, to be elected a fellow of AAAS. AS. Um, and so in, I'm kind of in the area of agricultural sciences and um, basically the way that works is um, other members of the triple AS kind of vote you in as a fellow. And it's mm-hmm. um, just a, a recognition of the scientific work you do. And then in my particular case, it was also recognising my efforts to communicate the importance of agricultural sciences to the public. And um, it's a little bit unusual, actually, for outreach efforts to get recognised in this way. And so I think that was a particularly, um, you know, good thing that that, that's true and obviously I have a research lab and my own molecular lab but I also spend a lot of my time as you mentioned on outreach and I I think it's a really important role that public scientists have to play in explaining um, agricultural sciences to the general public and I spend a lot of my time doing such things.
1: I know I know you do you were on the road uh, weeks at a time nice, right?
2: <laughs> <Yes>. it seems <laughs> you know, like that my dog yeah. my yeah. dog the other morning when I got up I just got home I got out of bed and he, he barked at me <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> the topic of that I wanted to focus on um, for this interview although we can we can go into other directions as well is a paper uh that was published uh in I guess, April or May of, 2000, of 2017, the current year. It was a paper in, sorry, uh, the Journal of Animal Science, I think. Is that right? That's right. Uh-huh. The, yeah. uh, and the title of the paper is Detection of Dietary DNA, Protein, and Glyphosate in Meat, Milk, and Eggs. And so really, that, really this really attempts to address the question, what does consuming GMOs do? In, in terms of uh, the presence of DNA for uh, GMO DNA, et cetera, et cetera, uh, on, you know, the, the foods, the animal products we consume. I, I don't know if I've described that very well, but how would you, you know, describe the paper? You could probably do a better job, better than I. Uh,
2: yeah. So basically it's a review paper looking at all of the scientific studies that have been done, um, seeing if it's possible to detect um, dietary um, DNA and protein. So, in other words, the DNA and protein that you consume as a, as a cow or a chicken or a pig, um, whether that's traces of that is present in the milk, meat, or eggs. Um, and so it really was was um, I guess the reason we did the paper was that I was getting a lot of calls about non-GMO milk mm-hmm. um, from cows that hadn't consumed genetically engineered crops. Um, And it just was kind of this nonsensical category because, to my knowledge, there wasn't any studies that showed there was anything different about the milk, meat or eggs from animals that had consumed genetically engineered (laughs) feed um, from those that had just consumed conventional feed. And so um, it was kind of labelling for something that wasn't there in the first place. Mm -hmm. Um, And this kind of absence labelling, I think, is a a real um, becoming a real problem because it's kind of. Um, suggesting that this whatever it is you're labelling for is present in conventional milk, meat or eggs. And that's just not the case. And so basically what we did, my lab manager and I, was reviewed the literature and had a look whether it's possible to detect the, the DNA sequence from the um, recombinant DNA that's present in, in genetically engineered crops in milk, meat or eggs. Mm-hmm. Um, and the bottom line was that you really can't. So, you know, when you eat a banana, for example you digest the banana, um, the DNA in the banana and the proteins in the banana, that's called food. <laughs> yeah. It gets digested by our stomach. Um, and then it gets made into the DNA of, of our bodies. Right. And so it doesn't alter our DNA in any way, or it's not present in, in, in after it's been digested. And similarly with animals, they digest their DNA and their their proteins in their food and then it gets reformed into um, you know the, the meat in the case of, of meat animals or milk in the case of dairy animals um, and if you try and do a PCR reaction or an ELISA test looking for the protein that's expressed by the um, recombinant DNA or the DNA itself it's not detectable in the milk meat and eggs of these animals um, whether it's conventional feed or genetically engineered feed it's just because of digestion. Um, and so it sounds like a pretty like well-known thing, but I, I just really wanted to have a look at what the data says um, mm-hmm. around this particular topic.
1: Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. And, and so for listeners who are, uh, unfamiliar with, uh, the acronym, the, um, f- the chemical test called PCR and ELISA, those are simply uh, different, uh, approaches, uh, to detecting, um, the, uh, Particular nucleic acids, or or heritable material, or or proteins, and uh, and so you, yeah, so that was quite. Uh, and you even got into some of the disadvantages, and advantages of of those different techniques in the paper. So so recombinant DNA is the is the DNA of that you know is what makes a GMO a GMO. And um, many of these studies that uh, that are I mean they just show over and over again no recombinant DNA detected and um, sometimes they report detection of, of endogenous DNA or choroplast DNA. What tell our listeners what, what that means and why that's important.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, the whole kind of premise is a little bit strange because DNA and protein is just food, right? <laughs> um, and so we're looking for whether there's traces of, of food DNA in in the products from these animals. And there are very high copy number of DNA sequences that are just part of the natural plant genetic makeup um, that sometimes will get detected in um, meat and, and sometimes in milk. Um, and that's just because it doesn't get hundred percent digested and that's part of normal digestion. Um, right. and similarly, you know, that's the same way we work as well as, as when we eat food. Um, and DNA itself is, you know, generally recognized as safe and, uh, and proteins, you know, if they're not toxic or allergenic are, are generally recognized as safe. And so, the fact that we're even having this discussion is a little bit strange because what are we saying here that there's a concern with having DNA in our food and unfortunately I think Jason Lusk did a survey where something yeah. like 80 percent of Americans surveyed didn't want their food containing DNA, DNA or they wanted their food labeled if it contained DNA yeah. and there just seems to be this fear around this very naturally occurring molecule that's present in pretty much everything you eat every day um, and we know you know eating a banana doesn't turn you into a banana um, yeah. and somehow there's some sort of magical properties associated with dna if it happens to be associated with genetic engineering and unfortunately i think that that kind of gets used as a, as a fear-mongering um, approach by some groups to suggest there's something inherently dangerous or or you know unsafe about this dna and that's just not what the scientific literature says and so um, it's it's frustrating and i guess what really frustrates me as I work a lot with farmers in extension as you do and talking to them about some of the requirements that are being put upon them by marketers where they're you know asking them to potentially feed their cattle non-gmo crops well, that just pushes them into a situation where they aren't able to use the technologies on the market, like, for example, BT corn, which is insect protected yeah. corn, and then they're therefore spraying with insecticides instead, rather than using genetically engineered insect protected corn. And to me, that's a that's a you know a bad environmental outcome, and it's a bad health outcome for the farmers, um, and it's for no difference in the, in the milk, meat or eggs to start with. And so why are we making the job harder for farmers? And they're the ones that kind of get stuck with the consequences of these absence labels that prohibit the use of particular um, innovations and, and technologies in agriculture. And we don't often hear from them, <laughs> the farmers. Uh, but when I talk to them, I, you know, I hear their frustration because um, it's making their job harder.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I remember, it was Jason Lusk that you referred to that did that survey. Right. Which is, I think it was a small survey, but it was nevertheless the only one either of us have probably ever seen on, you know, what, what uh, people want, you know, that 80%, I think you said, or 75 or 80%, whatever it was, want food to be labeled if it's not, DNA, you know, if it contains DNA. And I, I, th- I I thought about that, and I came up with something. I hope I remember to do in the next few days because I've got a talk at our local um, cooperative food cooperative on on genetic engineering in a few days, and it's going to be a you know probably a skeptical crowd, uh, which is the kind of crowd I, I most like to attempt to engage. And and um, so what I do with the public is I I hold up an apple and I say, th- so this is a non-GMO apple. There's nothing unusual about it. It's just a non-GMO apple. As, as you know, they're all apples are non-GMO worldwide. There is no genetically engineered apple on them. Oh, actually, whoops, that's right. <laughs> Wait a minute, there is. <laughs> it's no Not longer, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> the Arctic apple is, is the one genetically engineered apple. But if you buy off the, off the shelf, to, I think it's correct to say that you won't be uh, buying a gen- genetically engineered apple of course the arctic apple may be sold on shelves too who knows but um anyway so uh not in any case i'm using a non-gmo apple and um and i i i ask people i I bite into the apple and while i'm chewing i say to people raise your hand if you think i'm um eating dna and you know sometimes people actually go you know when they see me biting the apple because they don't know what i'm doing you know and and uh and eventually, a few hands go up. It depends if it's an audience of biologists, all the hands go up. But if it's a, it's a, uh, you know, it's a, the general public. Uh, you know, only a few people have the sort of the courage to raise their hands. And and uh, yeah, it's a playful way to, you know, make this point that DNA is just a perfectly natural molecule and present in all our food. Really, your your I think your idea was to um, evaluate this claim that that there was something different about about uh gmo crops and the and the animals that um that fed on them or feed on them um and and uh and so many of these studies were actually done where they evaluated not only for the recombinant dna or the introduced gene but the uh, but they also tested for plant genetics as well in the meat and um I, I didn't see anything that worried me but what uh I, I thought that was an interesting and 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 thorough scientific approach they tested to see if i mean in other words i guess my question is do we do do we get exposed to fragments of normal plant genes when we when we eat animals
2: um well the, the, it was kind of hit and miss a little bit as to whether they found those very common plant genes in animal products and quite possibly, yes. But again, does it really matter? (laughs) Um, Because the DNA, you know, whether it's plant DNA or or animal DNA, it's going to get digested in us as well. Um, And so, you know, there are real food safety risks to be concerned around, (laughs) you know, Food poisoning and bacterial contamination actually kill thousands of people every year, and so it's important to, you know, cook your food and make sure that you uh, don't have bacterial contamination. But worrying about things that are not associated with safety to me is kind of focusing on the wrong things and you know sometimes the risks that concern people and the risks that kill people are entirely different and uh, this is an example I think where um, we're we're looking for something that's not associated with risks and um, for no real logical reason Um, and I think that the the absence labeling trend and, and you see it on you know different products it's not only gmo you know i you see gluten-free things that had no chance of ever having gluten gluten gluten-free water and things like that um and it's it's a pretty kind of privileged position to be kind of judged by by what's not in your food and um it, it really to me is focusing on away from important real risks that are associated with our food supply and and to me i'd rather focus on those and and make sure that uh we avoid those rather than focusing on these these types of things but of course animals are you know the largest consumer of GMO feed um, by a long shot I think something like 70 to 90 percent of all genetically engineered crops is consumed by the livestock industry and so they're the ones that for 20 years basically generation after generation have been consuming these crops and this is kind of a follow-on to a previous study we did looking at the impacts of Consuming the genetically engineered feed on the literally billions of animals that have consumed it over the last 20 years in the U.S. livestock sector, and we basically didn't see that associated with any um, deleterious health trends either. And so, um, you know, I guess there's just no there there. Um, yeah. Is, Kind of what we were finding with these
1: studies. Yeah, I remember that paper too. So for listeners, Allison has done uh, really this two series, uh, two paper series that uh, are just wonderful contributions. And and I should say, I I I don't, I'm not concerned about the consumption of DNA, recombinant or natural plant DNA in in. in trace amounts and meats, particularly because I've read science like yours and, and others. And uh, so this review paper is a, is a wonderful contribution. Um, and so uh, wh- why don't we take a break uh, and take a short break and, uh, and we're going to come back to this topic and we're talking to uh, Dr. Allison Van Neen them from the <laughs> university of California department of animal sciences. She's an extension specialist and a really, I, I think the, probably the, 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 uh, the most well-known um, a spokesperson for uh, the science on genetics engineering as with re- in relation to animals and uh, so when we come back we'll continue with that discussion and I do want to thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast.
3: Hello Talking Biotech listeners my name is Nick Syke And I want to take just a quick moment to fill you in about a media company I just started called No Ideas Media. That's no with a K and a W. The whole purpose is to have pragmatic conversations about divisive topics. And I'm willing to bet that since you're listening to a biotechnology podcast right now, you'd probably agree that a pragmatic conversation about this topic couldn't hurt, especially when we're talking biotechnology in food, the dreaded GMO. And this is the first topic I wanted No Ideas Media to focus on, and so I went all over the place, Hawaii to Uganda, and I interviewed a ton of people, including Kevin Volta. I'm making videos with all of these interviews, and I would love you to check them out. You can find them by searching No Ideas Media on YouTube or Facebook. Remember, that's no as in knowledge. Every week you'll find a new video featuring some exciting expert or topic to do with genetically engineered food. And the videos are perfect for people who aren't super familiar with the science. So I really encourage you to share them, especially with people in your life who you know need to look at this scary topic of GMOs a little more pragmatically. This week's video, for example, covers something pretty scary. It's citrus greening. When I was in Florida, Kevin took me to visit Dr. Manjul Dutt and Dr. Jude Grosser, who helped me understand the impact this disease has had on the Florida citrus industry. Not only did I learn how bad the problem was, but I also got to witness how cool their solution to the problem is. GE citrus is really neat stuff, and it could seriously save the citrus industry if only people weren't so freaked out by the GE part. Well, that's why I make the videos and that's why you should help me share them. Oh, and if you want to get in on a surprisingly constructive conversation about biotechnology and maybe even help change a few minds, you should follow No Ideas Media on Facebook and get in on our threads there. It also really helps if you subscribe to the No Ideas Media YouTube channel. Plus that way you'll always know when there's something new and exciting to watch and share. We all like being in the know, right? that's probably why you're listening to this podcast after all which i will quit interrupting right this second thanks a lot
1: and we're back on the talking biotech podcast with dr allison van Nienenem, uh extension professor from the university of california department of animal sciences so first of all, everything that the animal eats, every food, uh, organic food item, every biological food item, such as corn grains, soybeans, alfalfa, and so on, anything derived from living that contains what was formerly living material uh, is going to have DNA. So there's DNA in the animal's diet. There's DNA in our diet. It's normal. It's just, you know, there. And, um, and that, you know, goes into the, the, uh, uh system, where it's digested, much of the DNA, maybe maybe it's in fact, most of the DNA is digested. Um, it, by the time it gets to the small intestine, is that right? I mean, how what percentage of the DNA that's no, that's present in that feed gets digested, Allison?
2: Yeah, so if you look at it, it depends a little bit on the system you're talking about because animals have different digestive systems, but around 85% of all nucleic acids are digested down to the single nucleotide level by the time they get to the small intestine, Okay. Okay. um, which basically means the DNA has been chopped up into its single building blocks by the time it gets to the small intestine.
1: The individual bricks in a brick wall.
2: Yeah, the A's and T's and C's and G's, and then, of course, the body of the animal will put it back together is as the animal's DNA uh, that's kind of how it works, and right. so that's, that's how, how it gets digested
1: so the bricks m- may be absorbed by the animal run through the circulatory system but these are the individual parts now the uh, the nucleotides are the letters that constitute right. the the building blocks and then the animal is going to reconstruct uh, its own DNA or construct its own DNA from those building blocks right mm-hmm. so so we have um, DNA building blocks in, and and maybe other fragments, com, incomplete fragments of DNA, in the small intestine. Then what happens to the DNA? I'm ju- I'm just sort of paint, painting this picture. Does it?
2: Right. Well, basically, I mean, it gets absorbed across the small intestine, mostly okay. nucleotides. You know, you'll get occasional little fragments of very um, high copy number genes from the plant. Just the, the natural high copy number genes, um, and basically, if you test um, the dna of, of milk meat and eggs you don't find reliable traces of of the dietary dna in other words the dna from the plants that the animal ate and there's no nutritional differences in the animal products or analytical differences in the animal products from cows and sheep and chickens and pigs that have eaten uh, recombinant dna versus or or you know genetically engineered crops versus conventional crops um, it's just indistinguishable. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, know, that's
1: the point, isn't it?
2: It's just milk, meat, and eggs, guys. Yeah. And so that really, I think, is the bottom line of the paper: is that um, there's there's just no difference there. And I think that um, you know some marketers are trying to suggest that this is there's a difference by labelling it as non-GMO milk or whatever. But it's it's kind of an oxymoron because there isn't any GMO milk, and I, I find it um, a little bit misleading to put. A pro, you know something like that on a product that doesn't contain it in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, it just is labelling a, dis- a differentiation that's not there, and we see it a lot with animal products. You know, I see things like um, you know hormone-free chickens. Well, they're not. You're not allowed to feed hormones to chickens, and so I'm sure that those chickens had their own endogenous hormones, or else mm-hmm. they couldn't grow. Right? That's that's basically how animals grow, and we all have hormones. But there's suggestion that somehow that's in there, or you know, antibiotic-free milk or something, and it's like that's illegal to sell. You you don't get antibiotic-free milk in conventional systems, and so these types of um, market one-upmanship to try to gain market share is just really, I think, confusing to the consumer because it suggests that these products are in conventional um, milk, meat, and eggs, and that's just not true. Mm
1: you you've done some work uh, on CRISPR-based or genome edited, editing in animals and bulls, and you said you had an update uh, offline. So I wanted to uh, ask you to give us a, a brief overview of, of some of your work in that in that area.
2: Sure. So I think listeners of this podcast will be familiar with some of the, the newer breeding methods that are coming along um, called gene editing, where you can go in and basically – uh, tweak, uh, the DNA to maybe turn off a gene in, in, um, that, that has a particular function that you want turned off. And so, um, a couple of years ago, in fact, I think on the first talking biotech, we spoke about, um, a project we have in collaboration with a company called Recominetics where, um, they went in and tweaked the gene that's responsible for growing horns on dairy bulls. Um, and we had, um, a couple of bulls born that had their, uh, their horn gene turned off so they don't grow horns and normally if you're not familiar with dairy cows they do grow horns Um, and they're physically removed um, usually um, when the calves are quite young to protect other animals from getting gored by the horns and of course they're human handlers and it's a fairly routine um, husbandry practice in, in dairy cattle and so we wanted to try to use a genetic approach to dehorn or, or remove the horns from these animals rather than having to do it manually just because it's it's an animal welfare concern it's it's a painful procedure and neither the cow nor the farmer enjoys doing it um, and so we had these two bulls born and um, the bulls have since matured and we've collected semen from them and just in September we had the first set of calves born from these genome edited bulls that don't grow horns and not growing horns is a dominant trait, meaning that if you inherit that from your one of your parents you'll, you'll that trait will be displayed mm-hmm. and so these These bulls were homozygous for not growing horns, or, and all of the calves were born um, having inherited that that from their dad, and all six of them are not growing horns. In other words, they're polled um, mm-hmm. in their phenotype, and so that's exciting. That's one of the first um, offspring of, of genome-edited animals to be born, and it's an interesting example because it's really an animal welfare trait that we're working on. It's um, a little bit different to the discussion around um, the genetically engineered crops I think because of course we're working with animals and, and that brings in a whole welfare perspective that's not really part of the, um, the plant discussion yeah. and I think it's a really interesting um, example of how we could use some of these new breeding methods to uh, try to work on some traits such as uh, horns uh, where we could use genetics rather than chemically having to remove the horns and so mm. the calves are pretty cute they're all a couple of months old now and we're going to be uh, evaluating them here at UC Davis in my lab looking at their um, DNA and making sure or having a look at that it got inherited faithfully and that the, the trait is inherited faithfully and that there's nothing else unexpected about the calves in terms of uh, their their phenotype or their appearance or anything to do with um, that particular trait. So that's just a little update. And yeah. of course, um, I'm sorry, plant breeders, but calves are a lot more fun to work with than yeah. <laughs> little, little corn, corn saplings or whatever they're called.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you might get stepped on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's probably happened to animal scientists. Yeah. And too. so,
2: you know, there's a couple of different applications that this yeah. technology is being used for in animal science. So there's a group at Missouri that's working on developing disease resistant pigs using okay. genome editing. Yeah. Um, and there are also groups in um, the UK working to develop um, resistance to African swine fever. And interestingly, China is doing quite a lot of work using uh, editing to develop animals that are resistant to TB and foot and mouth disease. And I really think the use of this technology to develop disease resistance is something that many people could get behind because I think you know having animals not get sick is good for the animals and it's also good for uh, not having to treat animals with antibiotics and so there's some I think shared values there that maybe is a little bit of a different discussion than we've had with the plant biotech discussion although of course there are of disease resistant plants like the papaya you mentioned in Hawaii um, again that's that's giving that inbuilt resistance to the ring spot virus to the plant so that it doesn't get sick and doesn't need to be treated with anything to prevent it from getting sick. And and that to me really fits with sustainability goals and pretty much every production system you could think of in terms of, um, you know, trying to um, produce more food um, better with, you know, less environmental impact.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. um, I certainly agree. Yeah. And the polled uh, phenotype that you talked about, the whole idea there is to really eliminate the horns in a way that's not traumatic for the animal right
2: <laughs> and yep. uh
1: you know I so that
2: as a geneticist you know there's no better way to do things than genetically <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, just because once you've made that change yeah. then it's inherited faithfully from generation to generation you don't need to keep you know dehorning every generation as it yeah. comes along and that i think is the real power of genetics for developing things like disease resistance or drought tolerance or or any of those types of traits it's it's what's called permanent and cumulative. That is, once you've made the improvement, it it goes on to the next generation with no further input.
1: Yeah. Hats hats off to you, you uh, geneticists. I mean, I, I am not a geneticist. I'm not a uh, molecular biologist, um, but uh, I've been very impressed as I've really done a lot of reading over the years to try to build this program that I provide on outreach and genetic engineering. I, uh, I am most impressed with what we can do with genetics for plant disease control and for other things as well. But that, that's my particular area of specialty is, is plant disease management. So it's, it's, right. just, boy, what yeah,
2: a, you know, you don't often think of genetics in the context of sustainability, but I think if you look at the yeah. uh, improvements in plants and animals over the years uh, it's a huge driver of reducing the environmental footprint of our food production systems, because if you can genetically increase yield per acre um you've basically you know increased the amount of food you can produce on an acre and that of course has the knock-on effect of reducing the environmental footprint of a pound of whatever it is you're growing on that acre and and that that equation i think is often um not not overtly thought of in sustainability discussions and and i'm very passionate about uh, ensuring that we have access to innovation in, in in breeding and genetics, because precluding the use of these technologies you know if we 'd stopped i don 't know artificial insemination for example in the in the dairy cattle industry, instead of milk um, today having an environmental footprint that 's about a third of what it was in the 1950s you know we 'd still have that same production system and, and we 'd need something like thirty million additional dairy cows in the U.S. to provide our milk relative to the 9 million we have now as a result of improving the genetics. And, and those types of trade-offs, I think, are really important to discuss if you're talking about um, blocking access to particular breeding methods.
1: Yeah, I think there's a, you know, uh, I think there's a future uh, for enhanced use of these technologies. It's Americans, skeptical. you know there 's a lot of Americans that are want, want to know more some are skeptical about genetic engineering, but by and large, my experience of Americans is when they understand the technology, many are like yeah it's it 's you know i can I can see a place for that and their their particular interests may often overlap overlap i mean the point you made about shared values is is an important one. We often do uh, have share you know similar values with people who are concerned about genetic engineering and i think uh getting together with those people in a face-to-face manner you know is sometimes very helpful so that thanks for what you do you know it's really it's really great what you do with uh, all the outreach is there before we we uh end this the uh, recording is there anything else you'd like for our listeners to know
2: if you haven't seen food evolution yet it's available on hulu for free now So Food Evolution is a 90-minute documentary that's narrated by Neil deGrasse Tyson that kind of talks about um, this particular discussion around GMOs, but more generally how we make decisions and um, how do we come to, to... change our minds based on evidence and the importance of objective evidence in, in, in forming opinions. And so um, I'd encourage anyone that hasn't seen it yet to have a look at it. It's, I know it's, it's streaming on a, a number of different platforms and um, such as, you know, Amazon and, and YouTube, and then also it's available for free on um, Hulu.
1: Great. Good, good point. Food Evolution, the movie. Thanks again, Alison, for joining us.
2: All right. Thanks for having me.
1: And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Talking Biotech. Write a review on iTunes and tell a friend to listen as your support allows us to deliver more about exciting science to more people. I'm Paul Vincelli and thank you for listening.
0: Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes. And recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's Electronic Lab Notebook, scientists can work together in real time Sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at Calabra.app, C O L A B R A.app.